Welcome to our podcast, Doing It Right. This podcast reveals authentic stories from successful leaders doing it right. It's about their journey to become a leader, their choices, motivations, and lessons. In essence, how they built successful personal brands. Your host is Valerie Sokolowski, author of eight leadership books and nationally known as an authority on executive presence and personal branding. Let's get started. Here's Valerie. Okay, as always, a little water this morning. You have probably coffee because for you, it's the middle of the day. But here we go. The movie is Miracle on Ice. The story of what Sports Illustrated said is the top sports event of the 20th century. The book by Mike Eruzioni is the making of a miracle. The story today is unbelievable. The man who's with me today is incredible and he believes in miracles and he was the one that made it happen. Mike Ruzioni was the captain of the hockey team and the player who scored the winning goal against the Russians in a game, hockey game that was unbelievably a miracle. So Mike, I don't want to have any more introductions except to say, welcome. Well, Valerie, thank you very much. Thank you for having me on your show. Uh, uh, appreciate uh, somebody still remembering what we did uh, 42 years ago. <laughs> How could we forget? Take us back there, Mike. Take us to what was going on in our world back then and how this just was so wonderful for a win for the USA. Well, you know, it, it, it's interesting. I think 42 years later, you look back on it um, and realize that it was more than a hockey game. Uh, for us as a team, it was a hockey game. We went into the Olympics with the hope and dreams of, of winning a medal. We didn't know if it would be gold, bronze, or silver, but our goal was to get to the medal round. And then when the smoke cleared and we won, uh, we didn't know it was that big an event. It wasn't until we got out into the country that realized that this thing was so special for a lot of people for a lot of reasons. For, for some people, it was uh, you know a hockey game, but for the most of this country, it was a shot in the arm. It was something that we needed. Um, you think back to 79 and 80 with the threat of a Cold War. Uh, the Soviets had invaded Afghanistan. Our hostages had been taken. Uh, there were a lot of political issues going on, gas lines, I mean, similar to what we're dealing with today, yeah. uh, other than the pandemic. But as a country, we were looking for something to feel good about, and it, it turned out to be us. And we didn't know it, but, um, you know, we take great pride in knowing it was a moment that touched so many people's lives in such a positive way. And it's amazing over 42 years how many people will come up to me and, and they say almost the exact same thing every time, depending on their age is I remember where I was when we won. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and when they say that, I go, I, I didn't know you were on the team. But that's what it felt like. People felt a part of us. People felt proud to wave a flag at a time when people were questioning um, our country and where we were headed. And Mike, uh, of course, you can see I read the book. Yes, I always read all my guests' book. And I love when you said, I always believed we could. Well, you have to believe, you know, if you don't think you're going to win, you probably won't. And, you know, we knew it was going to be hard. We knew it was going to be difficult but and challenging. But, I mean, that's what life is all about. Life is challenging. Sports are challenging. Uh, despite the odds, uh, let's go play the game. Let's find out what's going to happen. And, you know, as we kept playing and kept winning, our confidence level was improving and increasing. And, um, you know, it's that's what makes sports so great. You never know what's going to happen. But 
our event was was different, like I said, because it, you know, and I've said this many times, when you put a jersey that says USA across the front, it's different than playing for Chicago or Detroit or, or Dallas. You know, you represent the United States, and that's what separates the Olympic Games from other sporting events. And uh, like I said, we went in there with the hope and dreams of, of, of winning. But if, if you believe you have an opportunity, then you go play and find out. So just the feeling when you won and you got that goal, oh, my gosh. Did you realize at the moment the impact? No, no, no clue. We, we weren't allowed to talk to the media during the Olympic Games. Herb kind of set a standard that uh, he was going to do the press conferences, our assistant coach, but no players. So we didn't know what was being written or what was being said. Uh, clearly, we knew the people in Lake Placid were excited. And I knew my family and friends at home were excited, but uh, no idea that the world and the country was reacting the way they were until after the Games, uh, President Carter sent a plane to take the Olympians to the White House and when we got off the plane in Washington and took the bus from the airport to the White House, the streets were lined with people waving flags, holding up signs. And it was like, wow, I guess people watch this thing. <laughs> oh, my goodness. There are so many lessons. You know, Mike, I, uh, I always include in the show those lessons learned, those moments of uh, things that you would pass on to our audience and now to your grandchildren and I'm sure to your children at the time. And one of them was quit whining and start working. Tell us about that when it comes to Herb Brooks and all the things he puts you through. Well, you know, Herb, Herb was similar to my dad. My dad always said that, you know, don't be whining, just go out and work harder. Um, and I think Herb kind of had that same kind of uh, image to me as my dad did. Um, they were both very strict, very disciplinary type people uh, who believed in hard work uh, in order to be successful. Um, I came from a working class family. My dad worked three jobs. My mother stayed home and, and took care of six kids. So I understood at a young age how important it was to, to work hard to accomplish your goals. And again, I'll go back to some of the you know things my dad said to me. He said, no matter what happens in your life, you understand they're not to be successful. You work hard at it. I've never met a person that's successful because they're lucky. People are successful because they have the values of hard work and determination. And those are qualities that Herb instilled in us as well. Uh, I've always told people Herb was like your dad. You know, you love your dad, but sometimes you hate your dad because he makes you do things you don't want to do. <laughs> and that was Herb. Uh, he challenged us every single day to be the best. And uh, I, I think when we, we, you know, we won the whole thing, we look back and, and the, the messages and, and the challenges that Herb put in front of us all year uh, led us to, to believe in ourselves, but more importantly, I think, to believe in each other. And we had that trust. Um, we had that respect. We had that love for each other that, uh, you know, when you surround yourself with people who have those same goals and same objectives, usually you're going to be successful. And those are the qualities that our team had. Old-fashioned values, I like to call it. Hard work, believing in what you're doing. Old-fashioned values. I want to go back exactly to where you took us, which was when you were growing up. Jeep, your dad was called, uh, and what a character he was in the book. I want all the audience to get a copy of this book because it's, yes, the movie is the movie, and it's great. The book, though, is written by Mike, and there's a lot of the behind-the-scenes things. And a lot of it, Mike, is about your family. Let's go there for a minute. 
Talk to us about growing up in that big family, Italian. I'm Italian. My name would, well, my father's name was Vincenzo Ernesto Nacararo. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. He changed it to James Ernest Grant. Go figure. <laughs> but your yes, name is, uh, the name, your last name is what? I mean, it's a Ruzioni, but it stands for what? It means eruption, like eruption. the volcano. <laughs> uh, I had to put I that in. I didn't know that till somebody brought it up after the Olympics and told me what my name, <laughs> what my last name meant. Uh, but you know what? I, I grew up in a great environment. I grew up in a loving, caring family, um, a hardworking dad, like I told you, and a mother had, who had incredible uh, uh, love and life for her children. Uh, I grew up in a three-family house. Um, we lived on the second floor. I have four sisters and a brother. And upstairs was my mother's uh, brother who married my father's sister. And there were five kids in that family. And on the first floor was my father's other sister. And there were three kids in that family. And actually the two sisters were twins. So they were inseparable and, and our family was inseparable. So when I got approached a few years ago about writing the book with a, a gentleman friend of mine named Neil Baudet, um, I was hesitant because I didn't want to go through all the process of book signings and all that kind of stuff. but. I thought about it and went, you know what, I'll, I'll do it. And, and I wrote the book for one reason and, and one reason only. And I even told Harper Collins this. I said, I don't care if anybody buys the book. And they weren't very happy to hear me say that. But uh, I wrote the book because I wanted my grandkids to know about their great grandmother, their great grandfather. I wanted them to know about my family and how important family and friends are. I wanted them to know a little bit more about me, that my wife wasn't, my life wasn't, you know, one game, one moment, one goal. Mm -hmm. Um and uh, I'm happy with the way the book came out because it does describe my upbringing. And it talks obviously about the Olympics, but you know, I, I lived a great life because of the love and the care and the support of, of not only my family, but my aunts and uncles uh, on the first floor and, and the third floor. And uh, I think that one of the chapters in my book is uh, uh, three floors with no doors. And that's what it was, you know, I'd get in the house and if I didn't like what my mother was cooking, I'd go upstairs and eat. Uh, <laughs> I'd want to watch television. I'd go upstairs or downstairs and watch TV because we didn't have a television in my house till I think I was about 11 or 12, but my uncle uh, upstairs and downstairs had one. So we really didn't need one. And, and, and the funny thing is, you know, I live two houses from the house I grew up in. Uh, my son lives behind me. My daughter lives down the street. My cousin lives around the corner. Uh, so all the people that grew up in that three family house, as we've grown older and have our own children, all still live in the town. And we, we, we had a six-year run. The outstanding student-athlete in my high school was somebody who came out of that three-family house. And, and one last quick story was my youngest son, who's now 33, his senior year in high school, the high school baseball team, the starting nine, six of them were relatives who grew up and came out of the three-family house. So we had a, uh, a pretty good history of, of, of uh, successful athletes in the family that went on to college and, and moved on to uh, – to do different things in our community. Gosh, Mike. So I'm an only child and that just, I, I wish, always have wished that I had a large family. The value of family, which leads me to the value of taking care of each other. Tell us about your first skates with Connie's white skates yeah. that got you onto well, the ice. They used to freeze the tennis courts down the street from where I lived. And, uh, you know, I was a, a pretty active child, I guess, you know, I 
today I'd be considered hyperactive. When I was a kid, you were a pain in the ass. So, you know, I, you, you were always outside playing and doing things. So some of my friends told me they used to go down to the tennis courts and skate. And I went, well, I never skated before, but I'd like to go down and play. I think I was about seven or eight years old, maybe nine tops. Um, and I wanted to go, but I didn't have any ice skates. So one of my sisters, my sister Connie, who's my older sister, had these white figure skates that I fit into. <laughs> and I'd take the figure skates and put them over my shoulder and walk down the hill and across the corner to the tennis courts and try to skate or learn how to skate. And hockey's a kind of macho game. And what I, what I, I was not only in white figure skates, but she had these blue pom-poms on the toes of her skates. And I would go down and skate or try to skate. And then, you know, eventually my sister would come down and I'd give her and I'd walk home. And in those days, some people listening might remember you could save S&H green stamps. And my mom saved up enough stamps. And I came home one day and there was a pair of hide ice skates on the table. Uh, so that's kind of how I started playing hockey. But, you know, hockey was something you just did in the wintertime. I, I played more baseball than um, than hockey growing up. And football was my passion in high school. So, you know, in, in my community, which is not a very big town, that you needed three sport athletes to, get to fill rosters on our high school teams. So three sports were, you know, our, our multiple sports were a big part of me growing up. But uh, I started hockey with my, my sister's uh, white figure skates. <laughs> I loved reading about that and so many more unique stories only in the book. So I want the audience to remember that. It was just a fascinating read. Um, so going back to your childhood, do you cook? No. <laughs> in that big house that was always cooking and you didn't cook? There was always, there was always gravy, sausages, and meatballs <laughs> on the stove. My mother cooked constantly. My sisters can, I, like I said, I have four sisters and two of them can kind of cook a little like, bit like my mother. But if, like I said, if I didn't like what my mother was cooking, you could always get some good pasta upstairs from my aunt's house. So uh, I never, you know, I can barbecue and I can cook swordfish and salmon. But as far as making a pasta and meatballs and uh, that, that's really a, a skill that my, my sisters had. And my brother and I weren't very adept to it, although I can make meatballs, but not like my mother's. Never like my mother's. So guess what I'm going to do today, tonight? I'm going to make my Italian meat sauce. I'll be thinking of you and put a little love in it from you. <laughs> uh, talking about a big family, and this goes to your values, Mike. When, um, when you did something wrong, the eruptor, how were you disciplined? Well, first of all, he, 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 my mother was the disciplinarian in the house. Hmm. Um, she, she took care of all issues and all problems. If I got in trouble, uh, I remember one time getting in trouble and climbing under the bed, uh, hide from my mother, and she had a hockey stick, and she would be swinging at it underneath the bed trying to hit me, <laughs> something stupid. Um, and I'd be jumping up trying to avoid the hockey stick, and my head would hit the, the bottom of the bed. So that was one disciplinary problem that my mother would solve me with, but one of the things, and I think I have this in the book, is um, whenever you got in trouble, and, and I got in more trouble than my, my sisters, my mother would bring me to her bedroom. Above the bedroom, there was a cross, and Jesus was on the cross. And my mother would say, you tell Jesus you didn't do that. And I'm looking at the cross, and I'm looking at my mother, and I'm going, well, he's not going to hit me. So I would just go, I didn't do that. And my mother would say, you tell Jesus that. And I'd say, I didn't, hit, I didn't do that. And she'd go, okay. 
And I'd walk away with this little smile on my face and my sisters would look at me and go, you lied to Jesus. And I said, well, he's not going to hit me, but mom, mom's going to. So that was always a threat. I didn't get in, in, in front of the cross that many times, but every once in a while I'd do something and, and that would be the punishment. And, uh, you know, you, you never wanted to get you never wanted to get my mother mad. And not only me, if you talk to my cousins to this day, they'll tell you, don't get Auntie Helen mad because she had permission to hit anybody in the family. It didn't have to be just her own children. And, you know, that's the way it was then. I, I know things are different now. And I understand that I was never I was never the same way with my kids as my parents were with me. But um, that that actually made my uh, my kids laugh a little when they met my father when they grew up and got a little older. And I'd tell them stories about my dad and they'd say, no, that's not the same guy. He gives me candy. He gives me ice creams. And I'd look at my dad and go, that can't be the same guy that brought me up because I never got ice cream and candy. <laughs> but it was, a great, it was a great way to live. Oh, it was. I can just, you know, I, I'm a visual learner and I was just visualizing everything you said. It was like you just put us there. Uh, Jeep had a legacy. Tell us what his legacy from your perspective is. Well, my, my, my dad taught me about hard work. My dad taught me about uh, respect, uh, respecting people. My dad always said, treat people the way you want to be treated and respect people. Uh, and that was a great value that, that, I, that I carry to this day. Uh, and to see a man get up in the morning and go to work and come home and then go to work and then, you know, work on weekends and, and sometimes miss some of my games, uh, but always be there to support me. Uh, he was a character. He had some unique stories, and, and there are a couple in the book. The one story I didn't put in the book, and I wish I did, was uh, a friend had passed away, and my dad didn't know how to get to the funeral parlor, so he asked my Uncle Jerry on the first floor if he'd take him. And Uncle Jerry drove my father to the funeral parlor, and Uncle Jerry waited outside. And my dad went through the process of saying his condolences to everybody. It was a fairly long line. And, he was a great guy and I missed him. I you know, missed him. I worked with him. We spent a lot of years together and my dad gets in front of the casket and it was the wrong guy. It was the wrong casket. It was the wrong funeral parlor. And that just kind of typified my father, always finding a way to do something that was just out of, out of, out of the blue, you know? Um, but he was, he was a man's man. He, he, he loved his children. Um, he loved watching me and my brother play sports. Uh, he tried not to miss many games um, and he stayed true right to form. I, you know, my dad passed away. I think it's been now uh, six years and he died five minutes after my son got married. Mm. And it was like he waited for my son to get married. Um, and he was at the, the uh, soldier's home here in Massachusetts. And uh, my sister got the call five minutes after my son got married. So uh, he stayed true to form right to the end. He didn't want to disturb anybody else's life. And he kept to himself, but he was a hardworking man that, like I said, instilled incredible values in me uh, and my brothers and sisters and my cousins that all grew up in that house. Everybody loved Uncle Jeep. Um, and and he, was, he was a good man. And, and uh, like I said, he, he taught me and made me realize how important um, friendships are, how important family is, and how important this country is. He was a Marine um, and, and he had great pride in, 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 in the United States, great pride in, in our flag, uh, great pride in our national anthem. Uh, he was somebody that, that, you know, grew up in that, the greatest generation and understood the values of hard work and, and what this country means and what this country's done for so many people. You know, Mike, that, uh, that's such a beautiful description of your dad. And you look a lot like him, by the way, in the book. 
There are lots of pictures of the family. I loved seeing those. What's your legacy? What do you want people to remember about Mike Ruzioni? I just think that I'm a good person. Um, I think the same legacy that my dad had. You know, I, you know, just because because I won a gold medal and and you know scored the goal against the Russians, that doesn't define me. And I think that's why I told you earlier why I wrote the book. Um, it's important that that I carry on the values of hard work and determination and be a good dad, be a good grandfather, uh, be a good friend. Um, those are important to me. Uh, it's not the fact that, you know, I've, hey, I want a gold medal. I, I'm different than everybody else. I'm no different than anyone else. Uh, clearly, athletically, something happened in my life that I'm proud of and fortunate to have been a part of, but that doesn't make any me any better or any different than somebody else. So, uh, again, I'll go back to what my dad said. You treat people the way you want to be treated. And it's important for me that people like me or respect me. Um, they probably don't agree with everything I say all the time, but that's that's part of life. You don't agree with everything everybody says. But it's important that when I walk down the street or when I'm gone, people can say he was a nice guy. Mm -hmm. He was a gentleman and he treated me well. And, and that's important for me. You know, it's interesting, Mike, uh, that you came on this show. You've been on every major network and the biggest shows and all over the world and in presidents. And people say to me, how do you get people like a Mike Ruzioni? Well, how did I get Tom Holsey that introduced me to Mike? Real people come on the show. The ones that lose their integrity or get too big in their egos, and there's more of those than not. First of all, I don't want them on the show. And secondly, they never seem to be asked because they don't come into my realm. That's why I say again how important it is for the audience to know you're here. People put on their pants one leg at a time. If you're in a company and you're afraid of a title like a vice president or the CEO, you know what? They put their pants on just like you do one leg at a time, women or men. So you're a good example of that for, for being so humble. To that point, I had an interesting situation I saw Mike once, and it goes to now you're famous and you're signing a lot of autographs. I was coming out of a hotel where my office was uh, next door a couple of years ago, and a very famous, tall basketball player was coming out. And a little kid came up, ran up to him, wanting an autograph, and he said, get away, kid. I'll never forget that. I'll never forget that. What happens to people, Mike? I, I you know, that's, uh, and I've been around some of the greatest athletes in the world and, and seen some of them uh, do incredible things for so many people. And I've seen others say, no, I don't sign. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to do that. And I guess it's their right to, to decide if they want to sign an autograph or not sign an autograph. I disagree. Uh, I'll sign anything for anybody. I don't care. It's not that big a deal to me to take a few minutes out of, out of my time for, for anybody, you know, young boy, young girl, young man, young old people, old man, old woman, it doesn't matter. Uh, if they have that much respect for me that they would like my signature, uh, I'm free to do it. I don't, I don't care. You see the letters I get in the mail and the photographs I get in the mail for, excuse me, for people to sign. And I, I sign it and, and I send it back, but uh, everybody's different. Everybody ha handles, I guess, success in a, in a different way. Um, you know, I've always said, if we don't win a gold medal, I'm the same person I am, whether we won or whether we lost. 
Uh, and I'm not perfect. You know, my wife was here. She'd tell you that right now. I've done some stupid things over the years, but that's part of maturity. That's part of growing up. But I, I think for me, uh, it's important that, that I re respect who I am and, and, and realize that I'm, and I said this earlier, I'm, I'm no different than anyone else. Yeah, I, I, I want a gold medal. Okay, so you've done something in your life that I'm probably not able to do. And, and I think I look at it that way. You know, I, if, I, if we never won, I'd still be living in my hometown. I'd be married to the same girl. My wife and I have been married 38 years. And we dated for, I think, 10 or 11. She grew up four houses from me. So uh, what would have changed? I probably wouldn't have financially things have obviously gone well for me because I've made some good money traveling and, and doing a variety of things over the years. But I'd still be living in my same hometown. I might have more than, maybe I'd have more than three kids. I'd have been home more. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> but but I, would, I, I, I haven't, I wouldn't change. Why, why change? And I, I think that's the thing. Sometimes people, as they climb the ladder to success, I've noticed sometimes they change. They become different. You know, I've had CEOs of companies uh, ask me, you know, why, why do you stay the same? You are. I said, well, because I was very happy with who I was. <laughs> just because, you know, just because you're, you're more successful now, the reason you got there is because of the person you are. So why change? And, and again, I think I see that sometimes in athletes where the more successful they come, not all, probably very few. More, I, I've met more great athletes who do great things than the ones who do not. But mm -hmm. You know, the great ones, you know, you don't want to hear that story. Yeah. Uh, and I've said this to my wife before. I, I could, and I hate to say it this way, but I could get pulled over for a DUI someday, and that's front page of the newspaper. But if I went into a burning building and saved 10 people, that might make page five. So, you know, athletes are put in a little different situation sometimes because they don't want to hear the good. They want to hear the bad. They want to hear, you know, some of these athletes that are doing things that they shouldn't be doing. But how about the good ones? And there are more and more good ones that are out there that do so many good things for so many people. But that's not a great story. That's, you know, that's not a great story. The story is the guy that screwed up, the guy that made a mistake, or the, the lady that made a mistake. He, dwelling on negative things doesn't help. Find something positive. Let's talk more positive stories than negative stories. And maybe people would look at people differently than all, always talking about the negative negativism that's, that's going on. I love that, Mike. So true. There's lots to be negative about. So that doesn't make us sleep well at night. I want to go back to Donna. You said, I'm not a romantic guy. Okay. Tell us about that. How did you get her? How did you get to that goal if you're not a romantic guy? She was afraid to go out with me uh, because I was, you know, one of the athletes in the school and fairly popular. My wife's one of 13 kids. Wow. And very shy, very quiet, um, and just kind of keeps to herself. She had, you know, worked, you know, pretty much all through high school, so nobody really knew her. I used to see her all the time when I used to walk around the corner to go to the beach. I'd see her and five of her sisters sitting on lounge chairs with those uh, aluminum foil papers, you know, to get a suntan. And uh, I told my sister that she said, I'd like to go out with the Aliato girl, and my my daughter, my sister, was one of her best friends, and. My sister said, no, she won't. She won't go out with you. So eventually, you know, my sister talked her into going out with me and we, you know, dated. And, uh, you know, and she'll tell the story. She tried to dump me a bunch of times, but her father kept saying, no, you know what? Give him another chance. He's really a nice guy. I think you should give him another chance. <laughs> and, well, we, we stayed together for obviously to, to, you know, for a long time and to this day. But 
uh, the romantic part was I remember when I asked her to marry me, I said, <laughs> I know what you want. Why don't you just go get it? And she worked in the jewelers building in Boston. So she went, picked out her ring, wrapped it and put it under the Christmas tree and opened it the next day and, and act surprised to her family. So I guess that's kind of not somebody being very romantic, but um, she, she gets my act. She, she, she knows, uh, she knows all about me. There's nothing I can do to kind of fool her. I, I, I said something recently um, and I thought it was funny and she did too, but other people, uh, now that I'm a grandfather, I said the worst thing about being a grandfather is I'm sleeping with a grandmother. <laughs> I, I thought it was pretty funny. She kind of laughed and just gave me that look. And then some of her friends says, that's mean. You can't say that. And I went, well, I thought of it first so I can say that. So uh, we've been through a lot together and um, she's a special lady, a special woman and uh, been an incredible, incredible mother. And, and and if you see her now with the grandkids, it, it's amazing mm-hmm. um, what she does for my six grandkids and how important they are in, in her life. So um, I, I got lucky and uh, I have a special, a special lady, but uh, she'll, she'll agree. I am not very romantic. Well, it's working and that's a wonderful thing. So tell us what you're doing now. Where are your passions? I know about your fundraising things. Tell us about that and what your life is like now outside of family. Well, you know, I, I, I work at Boston University. I've been here 28 years in development. Uh, it's kind of, an, uh, I consider it an ambassador role in some ways. I meet with a lot of our students. I meet with obviously athletes, recruits that come on campus. Uh, hockey's kind of our big sport here. So um, I'm involved with, you know, when, when we have recruits on campus to meet the students and student athletes and talk to them a little bit about Boston University. I went to school here. It's a, it's an incredible place. Uh, and they give me the benefit of doing all the other things that I do. I still do a lot of corporate uh, speaking, motivational speaking. Um, fortunately, I get invited to a lot of nice celebrity golf tournaments. So golf is kind of a passion that I have now. I, uh, I, I don't skate at all anymore other than I help out with our high school hockey team. I've been doing that for 42 years as a volunteer. I get on to practices once in a while. Uh, clearly, I spend a lot of time with the grandkids when I can. Um, and uh, that's about it. I, I have my own charitable foundation called Winthrop Charities. I, I set it up years ago. I was on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Oh. And I got $150,000. So I started a charitable foundation and raised money for my community and various other charities around the country that I feel I can help and donate some money to. Um, quite a few years ago, I sold all my memorabilia. I sold my jerseys, uh, stick from the Russian game. And I got, I think about $1.4 million. And I, I took the money and, uh, endowed a scholarship in my mother and father's name at, at Boston university. Uh, I put some money into my own charitable foundation and, uh, the rest of the money went to my children and actually all three kids ended up buying houses. So I, I, I sold it because I wanted to, I wanted to see where it was. I didn't want them to sell it when I was dead. <laughs> and we laugh about it because the gold medal will never be sold while I'm alive. Uh, but if I die tomorrow, my 33-year-old son, he'll sell that thing in a heartbeat. Oh, so we, we got to control, control that a little. But uh, basically, that's, that's what I do. I, uh, I'm fortunate and blessed to be able to uh, continue 42 years later to, to speak at sales meetings and uh, have some fun traveling around the country. Um, but basically staying around the house, staying with my friends and family and uh, playing some golf and being with the grandkids, that's that's kind of my life right now that I enjoy. Mm. You know, Mike, uh, you spoke at IBM right after the win, and my husband was in the audience. He was an executive at IBM. 
So he told me to tell you he was there. I want you to tell the audience what your speech was about. What happened? Well, it was, it was funny because I they only wanted me for about three minutes. Bob Mathias, the great decathlon athlete, was the keynote speaker. And this was right after the Olympics. And they hired me for 10 appearances, five at the Fountain Blue in Florida and five at, I think it was the uh, Francis Drake in San Francisco. One, I'd never been to Florida before. Two, I'd never been to San Francisco before, or California. So that was pretty exciting. And the amazing thing was they wanted me to speak for three minutes. And I walked out onto the stage and I had my gold medal around my neck. And by the time the audience stopped applauding, my three minutes was basically over. So I couldn't really say anything. I said, you know, last week I was part of a great moment and, you know, kind of thank you very much kind of a deal. And it was like, okay, that's it. You're done. And I did, uh, it was 10 appearances and they paid me $3,000 or $3,500 in appearance. Those 10 appearances was the most money, more money than my dad ever made in a year working three jobs. So I said to my wife, a girlfriend at the time, Donna, we weren't married then. I said, uh, I think I can make a living doing this. The money's pretty good. <laughs> and never thinking it was going to last 42 years later. But when I told my dad what they paid me, he was like, you got to be kidding me. I work all year and I can't make that. So it was a fun appearance. Uh, but yeah, uh, I remember it because I, by the time I got even a chance to speak, my time was up. <laughs> well, he remembers it also. <laughs> so he said... That's okay. I've got his book so I could read more. <laughs> you know, Mike, I, again, I just thank you for taking the time. You told me uh, after this interview, you're going to go do what? I'm going to go take the grandkids for lunch. It's uh, a vacation week, and Papa's going to take them to a big boy lunch, and that's going to probably mean pizza, hot dogs, french fries, things that I don't eat. But... Uh, <laughs> I'll split a pizza with the kids. I think they'll enjoy that. <laughs> Before we go, I have to ask Derek something. Derek is um, amazed that you're on this show, my producer, and he plays hockey. Derek, oh, is, there, I- yeah, is there anything you want to say to Mike? I'll pop in and just say, Mike, thank, thanks again for joining us. I obviously know the story and uh, appreciate you and everything that you did. And just am super proud that you're on with Valerie. And thank you again for joining us. Really means a lot. Thank you very much. And and, and keep skating, but stay out of the penalty box. You're, you're a little, I don't know how old you are, but you sound a little too old to take penalties. So don't, don't do anything crazy while you're out there. I got you. I'll try to stay on the offensive side of things. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this has been just one of the most incredible interviews. Again, thank you so much, Mike. Have fun with the grandchildren today. And audience, read this book. It's inspiring for anyone in any sport or even not in sports. It's about true values and integrity, and that's what the show is about. So for now, have a great rest of the week, and I'll see you next time. And now for Valerieism believe in miracles they're still happening but you know what we miss them because sometimes they are just those little i like to call god winks those little things that happen to us sometimes every day but if we're not opening our eyes and looking for the fun little things that make a difference in the day like oh my gosh there is a parking spot right in front of the store or 
for heaven's sakes, Mary, you called me. I haven't heard from you in so long, and we were best friends in high school. It's a miracle you called me. Look at all those little things that happen to us every day. And here's the deal. Recognize there are miracles coming to you. And that says there's love coming to you. So watch for the miracles. Believe in them. They'll happen every day. Thanks for listening. To receive Valerie's voice, free monthly leadership tips, and to learn more about her leadership programs and coaching, visit her website, ValerieAndCompany.com. Next week, we'll be here again to inspire, engage, and equip you with teachable points of view from successful leaders who have been doing it right. Until then, lead authentically.